Caution. This episode features dramatic instances of Tia freaking out about power and generally being salty. It may not be suitable for donors, international non-governmental organizations or their sympathizers. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And welcome to The Journey to Transformation. What are we talking about today? So we're talking about power today. Power, power, power. (laughs) Do we have a power button? No. Power button coming soon. Great. So we're talking about power because there is conversations happening right now in the sector on shifting power and unequal power dynamics exist at all levels in organizations, in our communities, where we're based in the world. And so today's session is... Session. Session. (laughs) Today's... um, That's the facilitator in you talking. (laughs) Today's session. Today's episode is unpacking what power is. We're going to look a little bit more about how that manifests in the sector and share a few tips or ideas or ways in which we can better acknowledge our own power. I have a disagreement here with you, which I think is fine. We're colleagues. Sometimes we disagree. (laughs) I don't think we're having this conversation enough. And I think that the conversation that we're having is actually kind of a superficial one because what's happening is we're using language like, yeah, we really want to like we're feminist organization and we're shifting power. I think it's just a sexy phrase that people want to use because it makes them feel woke. And I don't think they live it. I know. We need a button, like a woke (laughs) button. Like whenever you say something that feels a bit woke. (laughs) Coming soon. Woke button coming coming soon. <laughs> or the anti-woke button. Oh, of like, so good. that's not woke. You just said it. You don't mean it. You just said it. <laughs> I'm feeling maybe I'm just feeling a bit salty today. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm feeling a bit cranky, everyone. I don't know why, but <laughs> okay. Hold on to your hats, everyone. Oh, today's going to be a real critical episode. <laughs> bow, 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 bow. Okay. <laughs> so, what do we mean by power? And you've kind of touched on shifting power and it being somewhat tokenistic. So, what do we actually mean by that? I think top line, like very general, we're very familiar with power over others, power over others in terms of resources, capacity, skills, knowledge. And that's often seen in quite a negative light. But there's also positive power in terms of power with others, perhaps collective action for change. Working in networks is indicator of, of hopefully positive power. And I think another point here is power is not always visible. We often only see power that is available to us or we can see around in the dynamics and relationships that we have, but there's also invisible power and hidden power that we do not understand. (laughs) (laughs) So power is not always bad. Power can be hidden. Power is at different levels and power is about control. There's a question here. Are you ready to give up control? And I think we're going to get into a bit of a discussion there. Tia's looking at me like she's not ready to give up. Her power. <laughs> do I have power? What power do I have? In what spaces? There we go. There we go. Let's get into it then. Tia, how does power and control manifest in the nonprofit sector? Money. Big one. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, (laughs) okay. That's it. End of the podcast. Bye. Bye. Donors have control and power over the decisions that their grantees make over their programming, the location of their programming. What happens is that those decisions of what to fund and what kind of power that then starts operating in the system is anchored to national interest. Everything kind of flows through the chain of money and power is exerted in our space, in the not-for-profit sector, fundamentally through flows of money. I'm a donor. I decide what funding mechanism I want to release based on my interest, based on my priority. Then I get all the NGOs to contort themselves into whatever shape they can get themselves into to fit that funding mechanism. So now I've set the context for everything that happens throughout the chain. So I decide what communities get reached, how they get reached, what programming is deployed. All of that gets decided. The time frame that programming is delivered, the amount of money that's put through that system, that's all dictated by the money. That is power. What happens when communities want to challenge things and that relationship, if I'm not going to talk shit about you, if your program delivery was garbage, I'm not going to say anything about you because I want the money to keep coming. That's a kind of power that gets exerted over communities. So the way it manifests for me most problematically, because I appreciate everything about positive power. And I did preface this whole thing by saying I'm feeling a bit salty today. <laughs> Everyone hold on. I'm looking forward to a lively and rigorous conversation about positive power. But at the moment, it's just for me, it's the ways in which money exerts control, dictates programming, dictates how people interact with programming. It's the money. Yeah. And I think that is a root of a lot of power dynamics. And so, I mean, there's maybe a little bit more nuance there in terms of you're talking a bit about political power and that uh, large donors in particular countries might choose their funding based on national interests. But there's also private sector funding and philanthropists, which to some degree are fueled by their own interests that may be less political, but they still hold power because they still have the money. So maybe there is some different dynamics of the power in terms of private interests and also the the restrictions and constraints that are situated in more traditional donors and perhaps more innovative private funding and philanthropy. I recognise that there's probably two different kinds of power there, but still the money is the central piece. I don't know what the answer to that is (laughs) because it goes back to a lot of things you've said before around just very much flipping everything the other way and putting rights holders at the top or at least as central people that we are serving. So how do you do that? How do you create, and I've seen this phrase somewhere else, community philanthropists, which have power over money and the decisions that are made in that spending. I mean, that feels like a huge shift, but how we get there is, I don't know, hard. So I'm, I'm just going to come back to you for, for an answer, a solution, and then I'm going to move to something else. <laughs> yeah, I think we need to get out of this thinking of it's my money. I can tell you what to do with it. Cash-based programming is really successful because it puts money directly in the hands of people who know how they need to use it. There's obviously challenges around cash-based programming, but I think we just need to get out of this idea of having to dictate what the journey looks like because we paid for it. The Department for International Development had this funding mechanism called the Program Partnership Arrangement, which was unrestricted strategic funding. So they said, here's a bunch of money, do whatever you want with it. And yeah, we had to do like log frames and 
stupid stuff like that. And that was an accountability mechanism. Fine. But it gave organizations the opportunity to decide and to be tactical and responsive. So Ebola breakout. Okay, let's just switch gears. We've got this funding mechanism. We can do something different and respond to the context. There was no going back to the Department for International Development and saying, hey, we, you know, something's happened. What can we do? Do we have any flexibility? Can we move, you know, 20% from this budget line to this budget line? There was none of that. It was right. You make the decisions. You've said this is what you want to achieve. You make the decisions on how best you think you can achieve that. So in terms of like unrestricted funding, that's a great way to be tactical and responsive. But we still don't we don't like push that any further down the chain. We accept the flexibility when we get it. and We're really excited about it. But we don't move that flexibility throughout the chain, throughout our interactions. There is a tension there between do whatever you want. We take the power away from us and we give it to you to make decisions and to control how it is that you want to do your programming. But then you you also have an accountability piece. I've got an unfinished thought here around accountability as power. Not sure where I'm going with that. (laughs) So let's just just talk through it. (laughs) I mean, I suppose I'm just thinking like to be held accountable or to have the public and a donor or a funder needing accountability. There's a power in that holding you to something. Money and accountability go hand in hand in kind of the strains of what you can and can't do. Another thought based on what you're saying, I feel like the nonprofit sector went through a period of his money, do what you want with it. And then we ended up with boreholes in a community that don't work or <laughs> that actually didn't meet the needs of the community. And nobody worked and talked with each other. They just took the funding and did whatever they wanted. And then we kind of went the other way, a bunch of log frames, high restrictions. Results-based financing. Well, (laughs) results-based financing. We went the other way and then the sector got hit by crisis. Then the sector is kind of going back the other way a bit. Because if you're a funder, yes, money is power, but that power is defined or dictated by how people are taking and using this money. And if there's a big public outcry about something that a, a nonprofit organization did, aren't you going to push your power a bit harder because, or put your like reins in? Pull the reins in. Pull the reins in. Thank you. <laughs> Gosh, I, I can see where you were going. <laughs> um because the power or the freedom that you've given has been abused. I don't know. I I think I'm maybe making this more complicated, but it's things that kind of I was thinking as you were speaking. No, you're not making it more complicated. Power is complicated, I think. I don't have an easy solution for it. I appreciate the tension that's there between the ways in which power get exerted through money and the need for accountability. I don't really want anybody to be giving large sums of money to anybody without them being held to account for how that's, that money is being spent. I just want the people who are holding organizations to account to be rights holders, really empowered rights holders. I think that that's a better way of conceiving of how we can have accountability and we can shift power where it needs to be. Because at the moment, it's just, it's so disproportionate. And and I don't think that it's an easy solution. If donors, governments, organizations are deciding where their programming is going to be, deciding what their programming is based on the funding mechanism that is made available. You know, I, I don't, I'm not expecting there to be like a massive global coalition of rights holders being like, here's where this programming should go and this is what it should look like. Like, I'm not insane. 
So another aspect I want to talk about is data as power, the power of data. And that I think situates itself alongside money because there's a lot of decisions that people are making, a lot of control over data that shapes a story to be something that it might not be. So I'll give a more concrete example. You know, you've mentioned log frames in the nonprofit sector. There is a lot of need to gather data and to make decisions around what data is collected. And that in itself is a massive power dynamic. You are deciding what data is important to collect, how you're going to measure that, and then how you're going to analyze it and share it with public donors, rights holders. So you are essentially shaping how people view a particular project or program through a streamline of what might appear to be quite mini decisions. But over a three-year period, you're suddenly dictating how something is viewed. If you get some data that speaks to failure, as you've rightly mentioned in another episode, and you decide you want to reshape that a little bit as lessons learned, you're (laughs) using your power as an individual and organization to completely reshape how people view that program, that project, and what it achieved or not. I need to take my failure convert it to lessons learned and then convert it into a snapshot for Instagram. So you're it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you're really shaping a story for its audience, but minimizing at every level that you're you're going through, every lens that you're going through, um, you're minimizing the real story that's being told and putting your power and decision-making and control over it as a priority. If you're going to rights holders, capturing their experiences, you're chipping away at the nuance and the detail, all in the effort of having generalizable data to then share with taxpayers or private individuals or foundations who give you money. You're chipping away at all of that stuff using your own lens to shape the narrative. Yeah, Eugene, I I mean, I don't know, it kind of baffles me that that my monitoring and evaluation or monitoring the data and the situation in a project and program hasn't gone through this deep reflection of power within it. And it baffles me because, you know, monitoring and evaluation experts, hi to all the many folk out there, and people who are working with data just don't realise how important those decisions are. And, you know, if you've got a set of three indicators, so for example, number of schools built, you're also deciding not to measure something else that might be important to the community. So you're wielding again a power Power of I think this state is important or this in- indicator and this measurement over potentially many others that are more important to other people. But it's basically they take that analysis and then they give it to somebody like me who thinks about strategy and program quality. So what comes down through the line is clear analysis. And then from that, I make a decision. At no point do I go back to the source to understand what power dynamics influenced all of those decisions. As you rightly said, all of those micro decisions that get made, how many questions to put on a survey? How long should my focus group be? How long should my key informant interview should be? What tools should I use to do that? All of that works its way through a chain. And by the time it gets to the person who needs to make a decision, a decision of consequence, it's already been analyzed through the lens of someone's positionality, through their own biases. I just make a decision based on that, but I don't 
take the time and I am guilty of this. I position myself in this, not hypothetically because it's happened and it will continue to happen because it's a hard thing to practice, but we need to get better at going back through the chain and asking ourselves where power was exerted through that line. Otherwise I'm making a decision based on something that has had the lens of power, the lens of bias overlaid through it and through the analysis as somebody who makes decisions and makes strategic decisions that have long-term significance, it's really shitty that I don't do that more. And it's really shitty that I haven't done that and haven't been better at practicing thinking through the ways in which power may influence the decisions that I'm making and the way in which the decisions that I make and the power that I wield in that space influences others. So... Absolutely. And, and I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> you are not the only one. I have. <laughs> Don't make me feel better. Stop trying. <laughs> I, I've, yeah, self reflecting piece, done a terrible job of calling to account power and monitoring and evaluation. Tune in to an episode about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about power and money, power and data. And I'm sure we could spend an hour talking about power and human resources and power in management, power in leadership. But ultimately, the non-for-profit sector is seeking to shift its power. And I think through recent projects, we've seen that manifest in resources capacity more than anything. Would you say? I agree that the appetite in the sector is this really sexy phraseology, shifting power. It sounds really good. It sounds incredible. But generally, it's poorly conceived, half-acidly executed. It's a catchphrase that people are using at the moment. I feel I can say that because, you know, one of the projects that we're working on is asking people about shifting power and them not necessarily feeling like it's fully realized or fully lived and giving really good examples of the ways in which they feel that that's just a tokenistic, you know, thing that looks nice on your website. For me, shifting power can be a couple of things. On the more kind of salty side of life, I think it's, ah, here's a little bit of power. Enjoy it. And give you some power to play around with and have fun with that. Best case scenario, it's a recognition that I have power and I need to take myself away from it. And that needs to look like me giving it away. I need to push power away from me toward you towards somebody else because I recognize that I have it. It feels like maybe a semantic or like a really subtle differentiation. But in my mind, the way the sentiment manifests within organizations is really significant because is it here's some power, but I still want to have control over whether you've got this policy in place. I still want to be able to see what your audited accounts look like. I still want to do this. I still want to do this. I still want to dictate to a certain extent what you do, but you get to make a couple of decisions here and there. Enjoy your little bit of power. Or if it's a deep reflection of, I recognize that I have power. I need to shift it in an ethical and responsible way that involves active dialogue with the person that you're shifting it to. Otherwise, it's just kind of delegation by another name. Right. And and when you're saying like push power away from you, are you meaning like pushing decision making and control? What what does it actually look like? What I want it to be is not just shifting resources. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to just be that. And that's what a lot of organizations are talking about. Oh, we're just like better resourcing the communities that we work in. We're whatever, blah. 
power is in the ability to decide. And that's what I want shifting power. I want decisions to be made by rights holders because they may say, actually, we don't have the capacity to be running all this shit for you. You do it. And this is how we want to engage with it. Or they may say, yeah, cool. Give us all that money. We'll do our own thing. It cannot be we're going to shift power, but we're going to dictate what the space looks like. It has to be about shifting decision making and shifting accountability the other way around. So you are accountable to rights holders. There is a kind of shared interest in the outcome. But at the end of the day, you don't decide anymore. All of the decisions I push over to you and you tell me what I need to do. So if what I want is money, but I want you to do the risk management, fine. But if it's give me the money, we'll manage the risk and you just do all the donor reporting. Fine. It's about shifting decision making and it's about rights holders being able to decide. A true shift in power is about decisions. Decision making is the umbrella that everything else sits under. Okay. That makes sense. But what? Okay. And that's journey to transformation. <laughs> so I'm an organization or an individual or whatever, and I'm thinking about shifting power. <laughs> I'm thinking about shifting power and pushing myself away from it. Who do I decide to shift power to? Because if I decide to give power to one partner organization over another or to a group of rights holders over another, I'm also influencing a power dynamic that exists outside myself. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think we can ever get away from the idea of power. I just, I don't think we can. But I think in the question of who do we decide, like, you know, organizations have strategic priority countries that they work in. They will have strategic areas that they work in. But in terms of like, who do you shift decision-making power to? Ask. I think it's completely reasonable to ask who should be making these decisions I see you making a face because what you're, what's turning around in your head is that there's power dynamics that exist between those groups. A complete that that's where you're going, right? Yeah, and and the government and local authorities and you know you, you go to all of them and say who do you think it is, and they'll come back to you and say me or not them or you know. I don't think it's easy, but I don't think it's international organizations. That's all. I don't have a solution to this because, you know, if you're working in a conflict affected country, well, you probably don't want the government, if there is one there, to be making these kinds of decisions. <laughs> not necessarily. Obviously, that's not a blanket statement. It depends. It's complicated. It's not without its potholes. And I completely appreciate that. I just think that what we've done is we've centered international NGOs as the deciders, the great deciders. And I I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that dynamic. I think there's a way, you know, if we want to talk about incrementalism and we want to talk about things like softly, softly approach, fine. But I think it needs to start with having decision making being led by the communities in which international organizations are working. Shifting power is not like that requires a whole dismantling of the industry I don't think that that's going to happen, nor do I necessarily think that that's what should happen. I think everybody's got a role to play, but I just think the proportionality is off. Mm. I think the prioritization of views and opinions is out of balance. Yeah, completely agree. And of course, there are power dynamics within 
all of that. We just can't, we can't get away from them. They exist everywhere. But in terms of the INGO rights holder dynamic, I just think it's too much in the direction of the INGOs deciding. There's two kind of power conversations happening, right? So there's the centering of the INGO and the decisions that it's making and how it's centered itself. And then there's the power analysis in terms of understanding the power dynamics in a particular context that you're working in. Because I think the latter one may not be deep enough, but there are tools like the power analysis, um, power cube, things that allow you to unsurface or look for relationships between different stakeholders in a country. And I've seen that being done and, and happening in some organizations I've worked for. The extent that it's enough is uh, you know, quality, but but also how that's being used to inform your programming. I also don't think is enough. Like I think people do power analysis very much in a tokenistic way, as you mentioned before. We've done it. We understand these power dynamics exist. Great. Let's move on. Um, so I filled out my template. <laughs> so so I think there's that, and obviously in complex contexts, that shifts a lot in terms of different conflict dynamics or changing environments in which people are moving. Migrant groups, for example, might change that dynamic. So doing that more frequently, I think, is something the sector might not do. But then there's the, we have power as INGOs. How are we giving up that power? So I, I'm wondering if there's sort of two different points there. <laughs> Just an observation. <laughs> not a point. <laughs> I think of it as like like a constellation okay. of different types of power flying around. I think there's a lot of ego in, as you rightly say, I can drop in, do a power analysis and understand, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to do gender and power analysis. I'm going to understand all of the dynamics and yes, I've got it now. Now we can do our programming. There's just a lot of ego in the idea that you can capture a whole history of dynamics that are built on culture, language, that you can capture that in an Excel sheet is just insanity to me. Do I think we should still make those efforts? Absolutely. Because we should still be trying to understand where we're working better and understand that there are limitations to that understanding because there are power dynamics that you just can't unravel. And I don't think our programming should seek to resolve it. It should seek to be sensitive to it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And the sensitivity is what should be taken forward and adapted and done more frequently. So being sensitive to how power changes. And the sector is also moving to look more at a systems piece. So look at how it can operate in a bigger context than just one community. So if you're doing a program in one community, you're probably going to need to also look at the systems that are holding that community back, which might be systems that are held by the government or are influenced by private sector organizations. So power analysis and power becomes more important because you're now looking at operating not just in one community, but across many different stakeholders in one community. Next is programming. <laughs> so the power then has to elevate and become your top priority as an organization or an INGO if you're now thinking about how a whole country can change rather than one community gets a service or something, which was maybe an older style programming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you've just unlocked a whole bunch of things that I feel challenged by. 
can we understand systemic issues in a country as people who sit outside of it, unless we're elevating and empowering people to help unpack that or to unpack that themselves? I just, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, we can't end on that note. So what I'm getting from what you're saying is you're framing this as like a big non-governmental organization, non-for-profit organization is going in and saying all these things and kind of dictating all the decisions. When I think in some, in a lot of ways, it doesn't work like that. Yes, they are making decisions, but there are civil society organizations, networks and other partners that are in the context not not like an organization's headquarters is there situated in Nairobi or in a you know a city and saying this is how it all is. Yes, that does happen, but there has been a shift to um having partners in civil society organizations and other networks who are situated in places where the non-profit sector works. I don't disagree with that. The thing that I don't enjoy and I appreciate happens like I'm a realist. I can't, you know, I understand how it works, but the thing that I don't like is this is the type of programming I need to do because the donor gave me money to do this very specific programming. So now I need to find the partners who fit within this programming. And so I think that you can have civil society organizations and you can have close partners, but they're delivering the stuff that you ask them to do because you're giving them the money to do those things. And I just don't think that we've unpacked that dynamic to make it So that civil society organizations can push back and say, actually, the way that you've designed this is not strategic. It's not fit for purpose. And we can work ourselves back up the chain of like, you know, is that program development, is that business development person sitting there on the phone with their civil society organization saying, what do people really need? How do I know? They're like, what's a sexy thing that I can sell to donors based on stuff we've already done in the past? I can just dig through my repository because I have, you know, 14 days to get this thing done, to do budgets, to get it through my internal approvals. Like I've been on that side of it. You don't have that time to get that deep engagement. You are making decisions based on what you think people need, based on information that may not be contextually relevant anymore. Best case scenario, you maybe have some time to talk to an office that you may have in that country, or you may have some people who can help feed into it. But the internal bureaucratic mechanisms in large INGOs just don't function in a way that's supportive of being able to get like meaningful feedback from rights holders. So I don't, I don't know, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> So we've just destroyed the sector. Let's leave. I'm the idealist. Like, get out. Get out of this podcast. I mean, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying, but I think we've also seen instances where there's an array of things and organisations or civil society organisations and partners already have that mandate, and then they are working with them and have had a long partnership with them. So I, I get what you're saying. Like, I, I agree that it doesn't work lots of ingos bureaucracy and prevents it and there isn't time but i do think there are small instances where it does work maybe it's the ordering maybe it's the ordering of things because i think that organizations generally do a decent job of picking partners but that's kind of my point is that they're picking their partners it's not like civil society organizations are going to your big ingos and saying hey you aren't delivering the services that this community needs come partner with us and we'll help you to deploy better 
it's the other way around. It's we've got a bucket load of money and we need some people to deliver it because we've decided that we're localizing. And so we're reducing our footprint in favor of working in partnership, which I think is a good thing, although I hate the phrase localization, but I think it's a good thing to do. But there's still a mandate that they're deciding. They're deciding who the partners are. My favorite interview question is, imagine I'm a civil society organization that you want to partner with. Sell yourself to me. Why should I want to be partnered with you as opposed to, and then I name, you know, three or four of their competitors. And it's always a stumbling block. That question always throws people because I think they want to say, well, you know, we've got really robust system for doing whatever. Everybody's got a robust system for doing whatever. Like you're operating under a regulatory framework. If you weren't, you're going to go to jail. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's really hard for people to imagine a scenario where they have to sell themselves to somebody else as opposed to them being the ones who get to pick who they partner with. And that's the issue that I have. But as a civil society organization or a partner that has um, five INGOs with big pots of money approaching you and saying, hey, can you shapeshift to being what we need you to be? Aren't you just going to go and play with the system? In a world where I think that they're just like, yeah, look at all these dum-dums, then like, yeah. But is that what people are doing? I want us to move further away from deciding we can just pick up partner organizations, civil society organizations. They're the ones who actually deliver the mandate. We take the credit for it as international NGOs. Maybe occasionally we throw the partner bone by, you know, putting their logo on our websites or whatever. But like, I just want us to move away from this idea of us being the, you know, the great deciders and that actually what we want are rights holders to be deciding what they want their lives to look like and how they want us to be involved in it. I guess playing a little bit devil's advocate, like the, well, point, stop it. the point in which rights holders make the decisions about their own lives is when the government has the systems in place and they don't need us anymore. Our very presence there is a dynamic in which they're having to ask somebody else or if they do get to the point where they're like to a large organisation, actually, we need this, you know, we want to work with you or we want to work with you rather than having an organisation ask them. We'll never get there because the point is we shouldn't be there in the first place. The point in which rights holders and partners are making the decisions for themselves is the point in which we are not there anymore. I think that people can always demand their rights regardless of what scenario they're in. So I don't think that you need to have a functioning like government and infrastructure to be in a position to say like, this is what I need and this is what I want. And that's it. You said it just then where you said, well, communities can ask for what they need. That's the dynamic that I don't like is that I don't feel like rights holders, communities that we as INGOs and NGOs serve, we serve them. I don't think they should have to ask. I think they should be telling us and demanding of us what they want to see. I just think we've set up a power dynamic where we create space for communities to give us feedback and to like, tell us how we did and how fantastic are we? Because you're afraid that if you tell us we're shit, that we're going to leave and go someplace else and take all of our money with us. Like, I just think we've created this dynamic where rights holders, communities, civil society organizations, partners have, you know, are put in this deferential position and have to ask INGOs for like, you know, uh, 
paltry amount of money compared to the amount of money that gets wasted on. We'll talk about aid waste in another episode. I just don't, I don't think that that's the dynamic. I think organizations, INGOs should be having to sell themselves to civil society, sell themselves to informal movements, sell themselves to communities as to why they are the ones who can be delivering. That's the dynamic that I think it should be set up because I don't think it's that way. I think we just drop into communities. We do whatever we want. We fly drones over them and map them without their permission. We do all kinds of crazy shit. And I don't, I don't like it. I'm sick of it. Okay, so how are we going to conclude this? Um, because I think we need to come back a little bit to power. Um, That's all I'm talking about. I think we need to come back to how we can do that. Because everything you're saying is absolutely true. We, the sector, non-profits, INGOs, need to step away. And that's kind of been like a thread through all of our podcasts so far that people need to give up space, need to step away and give up their power. But I do think there's like incremental steps to getting to that point. And, you know, whether that is um, thinking ahead that your partners and rights holders need to be in a conversation two months early than you would ordinarily, whether it's doing a power analysis at the beginning of a project with your partners and rights holders and then frequently and updating it and having insights um, from people who are in the communities more frequently. So I think everything here has to go back to those incremental steps that are starting out or being done. Yeah. I'm sick of your incrementalism. I mean, <laughs> I'm sick of it. Uh, but but the, the problem is, as you very rightly said, like if we go from one to shifting power and I'm shifting power, we're doing it in a tokenistic way. Isn't it better to take time to think about how you're going to get there rather than straight away saying, here's all the power, here's all the capacity and resources. Bye. Good luck. Like you, you can't do that. We've already said like there has to be. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is not just here's all the power, here's all the resources and whatever. What I'm saying is I want to shift thought and deciding that can happen now without destabilizing the like great industry of the do-gooders. Like you can say, right, we want to be community led. We want to be led by rights holders. If I can do like two things, it would be to lobby donors and to help organizations to lobby donors better. Lobby donors say, give us more time. You've given me four weeks to write a proposal that's about a program that could take five years. Give me time to ask and figure out meaningfully to have those deep discussions and to make sure that I'm reflecting people's needs accurately. Your internal structure needs time. Because if you've got certain budget thresholds that you, you know, you've got approval levels that need to happen within an organization, there's like a logistical piece that I completely understand. Practically, the heart and soul of my argument here is that we shouldn't be deciding what any of this looks like. We should just be giving our decision making to communities. And I'm not saying it's easy. I think it's hard. I just... Yeah, we, I completely understand your point, but I think we haven't really unpacked like 
what the barriers are and why that's not happening and how you get there. Like, I completely understand it has to be like that. Like communities and rights holders need to make the decisions and tell us how it works. But that's not going to happen tomorrow. And it hasn't happened for the past 30 years. So what needs to shift? I mean, is it the lobbying donors piece? Like, is that the shift? Is it is it more power given to civil society collectives and networks to lobby donors, which is happening? Is it bringing civil society organisations into spaces where decision makers are making those decisions? You've said it before what the answer is. Shifting mindsets. We're in a colonial mindset. That that's systemic. It's in how we've make decisions. It's embedded. It's baked into everything. We have gotten into a mindset in the sector of like, we know. And so we can do it. We can tell you what it needs to look like. We can shape it. And that's our like, you know, that's the colonial legacy of money and philanthropy and donors is this idea of like, we can tell you how to spend this money. We can't give it to you because, you know, you're going to, run off with it or whatever. We, we're not going to give it to you, but we, you know, we've got it. Don't you worry, darling. That's the dynamic that we've set up. It's a really interesting story. Somebody told me their organization rocked up to an internally displaced person's camp, an IDP camp, and they wanted to give some money for a small project for people in that camp. And they were like, okay, so uh, yeah, I just need to go through this checklist and my due diligence and check before we give you this money. I just need to see your registration, your business registration. And I just need to see uh, the last couple of years of your audited accounts. And they're like, what are you talking about? Oh, sorry. Partnership denied. We've just got these wacky ideas about what it takes to do this stuff. And it's just so rigid that there's just no space for life. Okay. I, I think we're going to need a part two <laughs> okay stay tuned we'll be right back thank you for listening to this week's episode of journey to transformation leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast journey to transformation is written and edited by us tia rogers and lauren burrows our music comes from Praz canal